And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, and gavest, thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. That'll be our reading for this evening, and at this time let us go to God in a word of prayer. Jesus' feet. I'm impressed with how many times I find people falling at the feet of Jesus when he was here in person. I suppose there were many people who did that that we don't have any record of. But we do have a record of four different individuals who did. And it's amazing to me the benefits that they received when they fell at Jesus' feet. I want to talk about that for a little while this evening. I want to go back with you and revisit these occasions and note the beautiful stories that are connected with each one. Also, we draw from them some spiritual benefits for the life that we try to live today for Christ. We need to be at Jesus' feet. This, of course, we're speaking figuratively now. But these people actually, literally, fell at the feet of Jesus. Today, of course, we can't do that. But we can do it at least figuratively. And we'll be talking about that a little bit as the lesson proceeds. We have, as I say, four different people, four characters, who fell at Jesus' feet. One of them received pardon. One found peace. One found praise. One found power. We can do the same thing. So we want to talk about them in turn for a little while this evening and see if there's not something that we receive as a benefit from each one of these. First, we're talking about the woman who found power, pardon, rather, at Jesus' feet. We're talking about Simon the Pharisee. Now, I don't want you to be confused with the other time that Jesus went into a home down in the land of Judea and uh, visited a home wherein Mary fell at his feet and anointed him. This is up in Galilee. And this person is certainly not to be compared with Mary, with the beloved and, and uh, consecrated and a wonderful person called Mary. Jesus was an old-time preacher. He was moving about over the country. He had not graduated from their schools, their theological seminaries of that day. And he was not very much liked. The, Sad the Pharisees and Sadducees particularly didn't like him because he didn't subscribe to the Brotherhood's idea. He was sort of a maverick. He was sort of a rebel to their ideas. And this didn't get him any uh, uh, points with them. This fellow Simon decided he would give Jesus a test, or so it seems to me. He invited Jesus to eat with him or to come into his home. Now, my understanding of it is he's a pretty well-to-do man. Had a home, beautiful mansion, I would suppose. And uh, he wanted to have Jesus there not to entertain him, really, 
Not to show him hospitality, actually, and not to have him as a beloved guest. But he wanted to humiliate our humble Savior. He wanted to just sort of cast aspersions upon him, see if he couldn't trick him a little bit, put him down, in other words. So we have this uh, scene taking place. They come to the door, Jesus and the apostles, and when they come at the door, they're snubbed to a certain extent. They're just brought on in and let sit off over here. Seems to me that Simon might have sat on the other side or a little distance away from them and just looked the situation over. But you know, they didn't have long to sit here deliberating about these matters because the door opens and in walks a woman. The Bible says that she was a sinful woman. Now, all the authorities that I've ever checked on says that she was a woman of the street, a scarlet woman. She was an immoral person, evidently. She had been used so many times until she had absolutely, just desperately, turned against love altogether, so far as we know. She didn't know what that was anymore, as is usually the case with a person like this. Nothing said about the men that had been in her lives. They'd gone on their way and doubtless become outstanding citizens of the community. But of course, she was left to bear the blame and to bear the uh, stain of it all. But she came in this day to Simon's house. I don't know why she came. There's conjecture about it. Some wonder why she came. And some wonder why this fellow Simon knew so much about her. You can just entertain that thought as you see fit in your own minds. But it might have been that she knew that Jesus was there and had heard of him and had known that he was sympathetic toward fallen people and sinful people. So she came. That's all we know. But I'll tell you one thing. When she walked in that house and looked into the eyes of this man, she saw a different man than she had ever seen in all the days of her life. She saw purity. She saw innocence. She saw everything that was high and holy and noble and good and true. So much so till the minute she looked in this man's eyes, the fountains of her emotions were burst asunder and tears began to stream out of her eyes down her face and she fell at his feet. And her tears began to stream down upon the dusty feet of Jesus. Thinking she had done something amiss then, she takes the long tresses of her hair and wipes his feet off realizing she shouldn't touch somebody like that and somebody shouldn't touch her in that day and age because she was a sinful woman. Well, while this was taking place, Simon set off over here and had heard somewhat of Jesus that he was a prophet. He was a man who was esteemed very highly in many respects, so he says within himself, you know, he must not be what he claims to be or he wouldn't let a woman like that touch him. That's one thing for sure. Well, you know, you don't have to write out a statement and hand it to Jesus for him to know what you're thinking about. Second chapter of the book of John said he needed not that any should testify of man because he knew what was in man. And you can be assured of that tonight. He's reading your heart tonight. He's reading your thoughts tonight. You don't have to express them. He knows they're there. And he knows what they are, too. So when he saw Simon over here, and he read right through the window pane of his heart these things, he said, Simon, Simon, I have somewhat to say to thee. In other words, listen up, Simon, I want to tell you something. Well, Simon said, say on, master. Well, this is not said sincerely because he didn't consider him his master, but he did say it probably for politeness sake since he was in his house. Say on, master. 
And then Jesus tells him this wonderful thing here. Jesus tells him, he says, you know, Simon, uh, when I came here, uh, when I came here, uh, you didn't entertain me properly. You didn't give me much of, a, of an acceptance when I came here. And uh, I know that you're thinking that I should know who this woman is and what she is and so on and so forth. And so I want to say something to you. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, he said, therefore, which of them will love him most? Well, as Brother J.W. McGarvey says when he comments upon this, Simon just seems to think, well, that's no big deal. That's not a difficult question to ask. He says, well, I suppose that he uh, whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, thou hast rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman, but said to Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, which was the custom of acceptance and politeness and hospitality in that day. Since I've been here, this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. I say, ladies and gentlemen, she was at the feet of Jesus. If ever there was anybody who was at the feet of Jesus, this poor, sinful, broken woman was. There she was. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And don't you ever doubt that Simon got the point. He got the point. And it struck him quite forcibly. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven thee. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something right now. This is a beautiful story. One of the forgivenesses of Jesus Christ on this side of the cross. And I'm not going to preach a big sermon about that tonight, but this is one of the forgivenesses of Jesus on this side of the cross before the gospel was revealed and before the plan of salvation was effected. But she came down to the feet of Jesus, and that's where she found her pardon. Had she not come in that house that day, and had she not fallen to the feet of Jesus, there would have been no pardon for that woman upon that occasion. But she did, and she found sweet pardon there. You and I today are certainly under a different administration. Jesus has died on the cross, and he sent forth his word into the world that you and I have today. And we don't come down to the feet of Jesus, literally. And I'm certainly not talking about coming down to a mourner's bench and kneeling down. So don't get that idea. But I am saying this. In essence, when we listen to the commandments of Jesus Christ and when we obey them, we are as close to the feet of Jesus as people can ever be in this life. And that's where we'll have to be if we obtain any pardon. Jesus said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And the people who walk around over the country tonight just saying, Lord, Lord, so to speak, are trying to employ their own designs and their own plans. Those who think they can go and sit out on a log by the creek down yonder and watch the birds and listen at the breezes blow and so on and so forth, then they're going to get religion down there. They're just as far from the scriptures as they can be and there'll be no pardon there. We must obey the word of the Lord. And that is 
falling at the feet of Jesus for pardon. That's the way we do it. There's no other way. And if we reject that, we have banished the cup of salvation from our lips. Didn't the Apostle Paul say in 2 Thessalonians 1 and 7, You who trouble, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them who know not God and obey not the gospel. There's something called the gospel. Paul said in Romans 1 and 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, and that's the only place you will find the righteousness of God. It is contained within the uh, uh, teachings of the Scripture. Now, when we obey that, we're saved. But as Paul says, when we don't obey them, we can expect flaming fire to be administered upon us, as the Apostle Paul says. Peter said, what shall be the end of them? And know not God, and obey not the gospel. Well, so much for this part of our sermon. We learn then that we must be at the feet of Jesus, even as she was in a different form, however, but with the same humility, with the same love, with the same interest, and with the same obedience. We come on down next to the next person that we talk about. This is in Luke 8 and 35. This is when Jesus and his disciples were upon the uh, boat crossing the Lake of Galilee. It was placid and calm at this time. But this little lake called Galilee was surrounded with some mountains that looked like the opening petals of a rose. The lake could be perfectly calm, but in matters of moments, a storm could sweep down from the top of those, that, those mountains and, and hit the surface of that lake and whip it up into a tornado, whip it up into a storm, a hurricane, in just matters of minutes. And that's what happened. While they were sailing along, Jesus was tired. He was, he was uh, weary from preaching. The human side of Jesus was weary and tired. So he lay himself down to sleep that night. You know, you can get tired of preaching. People don't know that, but you can get tired of preaching, you know. Now, I'm not going to say that preaching is, is as tiring as uh, making a cotton crop like some have tried to tell you. I know better. I've done both. But you can get tired of preaching even. Jesus was tired of preaching, and he was resting his head that night. And they glided along over unrippled waters for a while when all of a sudden that storm came down. They began to mend the boat as best they could. They began to bail out the water as best they could, but do as they might, they're going to drown. And they saw that they were, and that ship was going to go down right into the depths of that sea. But they happened to think, Jesus is on board. And no ship ever went down with Jesus on board. Sometimes, you know, we go through life, and we forget we have Jesus on board with us in our small bark as we sail out across life's sea. And we try everything else before we even call upon him, even as they did. We try all of our human resources, and we do everything we can. But finally, somebody thought, we've got the master on board. And somebody ran down to him. I don't think they just rushed up and grabbed him like he would your football, buddy. I think they were standing in awe of this man. They always did. But they said, master, master, we perish. We perish. Or as another narrative puts it, and as Mary Baker said in her beautiful song, classic, Master of the Tempest is Raging, carest thou not that we perish? Of course he cared. He opened his eyes and he stood up. And I don't think he had to yell. He didn't have to scream. He just said it quite uh, calmly. Peace, be still. And the Bible dramatically describes it by saying, there was a calm, just like that. 
The wind stops. The sea falls as smooth as a mirror. He ironed the wrinkles out right there, just like that. Well, they could see the reflection of a distant star in the unrippled waters at his feet then. And they thought, behold, what a man. What a man this is. They went to bed that night or bunked down that night thinking as they glided over the waters, we don't understand this man, and they really never did. That's the reason Jesus prayed in the 17th chapter of the book of John that God would let him take them home with him so they could see his glory one day, and then they would know. But finally they landed in the land of the Gadarenes, and when they, when they landed there, they started off the, the boat they saw a figure coming down from the tombs up yonder, naked, bloody, gashed, and screaming. And he saw Jesus, and he recognized Jesus. The demons within him recognized Jesus. Don't you ever doubt the devils know Jesus, and they know his power. So he screamed out and said, Oh, thou son of God, comest thou to torment me? Don't torment me before the time. In other words, he wanted all the days of probation that were coming to him down here. And you know the rest of the story. Jesus commanded, said, Who art thou? Legion was a quick, wild-tone reply because there were many of them. And Jesus said, Come out of the man. He said, If I've got, we've got to come out, let us go into that herd of swine over yonder across the lake on the other side. An old-timer had been feeding out a crop of hogs over there that year. And he had them up in pretty good shape, evidently. But the, the devils entered into those hogs, and they ran down a, violently down a steep place into the sea and were choked, the Bible says. Well, in our countrified way, we just know they were drowned. That's what happened. And that old man stood up there greatly dismayed and upset over the fact that he had lost all of his hogs, and I certainly don't blame him for that. He didn't know any different. And so why wouldn't he be? Why, it's a tragic thing when you've invested all of your a savings and everything into a project and then lose it all just like that. But he didn't know then yet, I don't think, that there had been another great benefit given to the land. And it's like I told you earlier, Jesus never takes anything away from you. He doesn't give you something in the place of it tenfold better. And that was what was happening to the land of the Gadarenes if they had just known it. But the old man evidently didn't know it at that time. So the Bible says he went into the town and he told it in the country and he told it in the city. And he didn't lie, but he sort of slanted it. He went to tell him that he'd lost his hogs and he told where the, the man came from that made him lose his hogs. And the best I can figure out from this whole narrative is, is he painted Jesus up in the wrong way. Jesus was there to give him some benefits. He was there to give the whole land some benefits. But he had lost his hogs, and he was upset about that. He had gained a great benefit, but he'd have to give up something. He had lost his hogs, and he told it everywhere in town. He went to the barber shops, and he went to the seed stores, and he went to the fertilized stores, and he went to the grocery stores, and he told it everywhere and had the town all stirred up over the matter. So a great crowd came running out to the coast, you know. You tell, let a rumor get started, and there's always somebody ready to listen. There's people who like to listen as well as people who like to tell. And when you get that combination going, you've got a problem in the country. Well, they went running out to the 
seaside where Jesus was there. And there sat Jesus, just as calm as an in the lake, sitting there. But I want to tell you something else. There sat legion at his feet. I think when they got there, they came up kind of tiptoeing around. They were afraid of this man because they had every reason to be afraid of. No man had ever been able to bind him, the Bible says. When they put ropes on him, he snapped them asunder just like Samson did. When Delilah shouted out, the Philistines be upon thee, he just broke them and got up from there and went on around over the country, yelling and screaming and crying and cutting himself with stones and bleeding and going back to the tombs. That's where he lived. But now, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Children can go out and play. You can go plow the back 40 without him jumping out of the woods at you. You can go on now and just do your work all over the country. The country is freed of its menace. But they'd have to give up some hogs. And so now there's a big, big problem. These people came out there and they saw him, though, sitting at Jesus' feet, looking up at him, admiring him, loving him, respecting him, thanking him for what he had done for him. The rest of the country may not be impressed, but I am, thanks this man, look what he's done for me. And oh, yes, don't let me forget this. He had his clothes on. Before he presented himself to Jesus, he put his clothes on. And I think that's a remarkable point in view of the day we're living in. And I just have decided from this particular narrative that when a person's thinking right, they'll put their clothes on and they'll wear clothes and they won't go around showing their nakedness all over the country. I don't know what's got into these, the people of this land anyway. Before he'd come to Jesus, he put his clothes on. Before people come to church, they ought to clothe themselves decently. I've seen people come to church disgraceful, as much flesh showing as they had covered, and maybe more. And then some long-mouthed preacher would come up and try to get Thayer's Greek lexicon and try to tell them that that's modest. Well, we know better than that. We don't have to have some theologian explaining these matters to us. We know what's modest and we know what's not modest. And we don't have to have great big sermons about it. This man put his clothes on when he came to see Jesus. And that goes for men, women, boys, girls, the whole business. And that goes to show you he's thinking right. And when a person goes around modest in this day and age in which we live, you can just see the people and notice the people. And I don't care if they are church members. You notice the people who are thinking right. Also, he's not fearful anymore. You don't have to be afraid of this man anymore. The heart that had been a council room for demons now is a throne room for angels. And the stormy sea that had been raging in his heart has been calm just like the waves of Galilee had been calm the night before. Because Jesus can calm the storms, whether it's inside or outside, if you come down to his feet because that's where he was. And there he sat. But you know, uh, I guess it was a committee. Committees are impressive things. And probably it was a committee from the city that came out and walked up to him and advised him that we would like you to leave our country. We would like you to leave our shores. That hurt Jesus. 
after all that Jesus had done. And Jesus is hurt today when you go against his teachings and when you kick him out of your life and when you kick him out of your country, when you kick him out of your home. That hurts Jesus. And the heart of Jesus can be hurt because he's the son of God and because he's deified and because he's glorified no sign he can't be hurt. The tender heart of Jesus is wounded many times because of his followers today. In view of all that he's done for us, but he'll leave. He's a gentleman. When he knocks, he won't even come in until you answer and open the door. And when you ask him to leave, he'll sure leave. And when you kick him out, he'll go. But you better be careful how you do that. You might need him someday. There are days up ahead that you can't see today. There are times yet unforeseen that you're going to need the Lord. You might not be able to recognize that now you're vigorous and you're young and you're healthy and the family's all right and the little home is perfect right now, but listen, dark days will come. Tempest of life will blow. Sickness will invade that home and someday that grim monster death's going to step across your threshold. He's going to take that baby of yours. He's going to take that wife of yours. It might even be you that he's going to gather in his cold, icy arms and bear you away. So you better be prepared. Don't run Jesus out of your life. Jesus looked at his apostles and said, let's go. They walked over here and they stepped over in that boat and started to push off. Everybody else is standing there all eyes. The only man there that I know of that was really in sympathy with him was the man whom he'd healed. And as Jesus starts off, he hears somebody say, Lord, let me go with you. Let me go. Jesus wouldn't let him go. And you know why? Because Jesus needed a witness in that land. He needed a voice there to talk to the people. I can't stay. They're making me leave. My apostles couldn't stay. They wouldn't let them stay. But you got to be my voice. And it well might be that you are the only voice that the Lord has in your community. It might well be that you are the only person whom the Lord can depend on to take the message to that family across the street over yonder from you. Don't talk to them about politics all the time, raising whatever you raise, grapes or cotton or whatever it is. Don't talk about that all the time. Talk to them about something that can benefit them here and hereafter. Can bring a blessing to them in this life and give them salvation and redemption in the world to come. Jesus said, you go back home. And you tell your friends what great things the Lord hath done for thee and how that he hath had compassion upon thee. Well, he stands there for a minute and he thinks, well, if that's what he wants me to do, that's what I'll do. He turns around, I think, and walks right out that crowd and heads for home. He doesn't understand these people anymore and they sure don't understand him anymore. But listen, what a prospect. What was that word he said? Go where? home go home he probably hasn't been home in years but he's going home today oh he might have gone by home a time or two in his raging and in his trips about over the country the children looks and sees him and screams and says, there he is and runs out the back door and terrified but he's going home 
when he gets to home today in my fancy, I can see him as he comes home today. And the children look out and turn to go, but then they think, wait, there's something different today. He's not bloody. He's not naked. He's got his clothes on. He's smiling, and he's reaching out his hand for his babies. That's the old daddy we used to know a long time ago. Oh, I'll tell you something tonight. That was peace in that home that night. Jesus had brought peace to that home that night. Jesus had brought peace to the heart of that man that night. And the only time you will ever have peace in your home, the only time you'll ever have peace in your life is when you fall at the feet of Jesus Christ and take his word into your life and into your homes and into your and you will never have it any other way. Don't think you can get any shortcuts through. You don't need to go get a best-selling book on how to be happy and have peace in my life because every one of them wants to cut around Jesus. They don't believe in him anymore. They don't think he's not. And they think the people who are following him are a bunch of weirdos. So you just take the Bible and you do what it says and you open up your hearts and when you do, you're at the feet of Jesus and you're going to have peace in your life and in your home. Next, praise. One day Jesus and his apostles were walking into a city and as they walked into the city, they saw ten men standing off out under just as white as snow. Their flesh was just hardened and brittle, breaking off, bones exposed, and abandoned for as far as we know and had been banished from their homes. Back in that day, it didn't matter who you were. It could be the newborn baby. It could be your mother, beloved mother. It could be whoever. But if that spot occurred on them and the priests saw it, they were banished. It's goodbye to mama. She has to go. And these ten people had evidently colonized for the some sake of society, some company that they could get from one another, so far as I know, with, of course, that command resting heavily upon them that when they saw anybody, they were supposed to cover their mouth and scream, unclean, unclean. But today Jesus went walking down the road and they saw him and came up just as near to the road as was appropriate and stopped. And when Jesus saw them, he had compassion upon them because there's nobody who can have compassion like the Lord. And he said to them, go show yourself to the priest. And of course that was the law under Moses' law. Don't develop or not. Go show yourself to the priest. I don't know why they did this. Maybe it was a ring of authority that Christ had in his voice. Maybe they thought, well, what's the difference? We don't have anything else to do for sure. But all I know is they started off down the road to go see the priest. When all of a sudden they felt a surge of health come through their body like they hadn't felt in years and years and years. All of a sudden the surging of uh, the uh, fever in their temple stopped. All of a sudden, the pounding of their heart stopped. All of a sudden, that aching, painful disease subsided, and they just felt as good as they ever felt in their life. And they looked down at their flesh, and the Bible just goes to say it was looked like the flesh of a child. They were healed. 
And one of them throws his brakes on right there. He stops. And the Bible takes pains to tell you, and he was a Samaritan. Now, the Bible made a point there. The rest of them were Jews, and they should have known. They should have understood, but they didn't. They kept going on. But this fella had enough gratitude in his heart and enough praise in his heart that he stopped. And he thought, oh, I must go back and tell him how much I love him. I must go back and tell him how much I thank him. And he turned and came and met Jesus and lay there in the road where? At his feet. And thanked him and thanked him and thanked him and praised Jesus for what he had done. Do we praise Christ for what he's done for us today in our lives? I know we say a prayer when we come to church. Do those prayers really speak out the real feelings of our souls? And do we feel that from day to day as we live in a real, real sense? Do we thank him when we eat our food? Do we thank him for that time when we were sitting in the hospital down yonder with a life hanging in the balance? We wondered how it's going to be and the doctor comes out and says, we don't know how it's going to be yet. And you think, oh, God, please have mercy. And you pray and you pray and after a while, after some tests are made and some treatments are made, he comes back out and says, it's going to be all right. We decided now that you praise him then and praise him the rest of your life for it. I know some of you do. I suppose all of you do. That man found praise in his heart for Jesus when he did that that day. And aren't we thankful for the fact that we can come to the feet of Jesus and praise him for what he's done. One more thing in connection with this was Jesus stood there and looked at him he stood there gratified and, and, and happy that a person like that would be so thankful and so, so appreciative of his benefits. But he was a little bit saddened because of a situation. He says to him, were there not ten? Where are the nine? up a bunch of sins that would the later days who cause in that long sordid list of immoralities and so on and so forth among them he says that would be people today who would be unthankful you think that's not a sin if you think I'm just twiddling my thongs and talking about trivialities tonight Paul said that would accompany the people of these latter days who don't properly praise the Lord and give him the credits for what he's done. Last tonight, we want to talk about the people or the person who found power at the feet of Jesus. I love this one so much. Bethany was just a few miles out of Jerusalem. Bethany was such a pretty little town. You ought to read up on what a pretty little situation this is perched upon the side of a mountain with palm trees growing all around it and flowers of exquisite style just were in constant bloom. Bethany, the beautiful little town. Jesus liked to go out here. This was one place where the welcome mat was always out and Christ knew it. When the hard day was done in the city and when people had been so unreceptive when persecutions had even attended their lives, 
And when the sun was lowering over the western hills and you wondered where are we going to spend the night tonight with all the boys of the crowd, the twelve, where are we going to go tonight? They always remembered we can always go to Bethany. We can always go down to the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. We read several times that they went, and oh, the Lord only knows how many times they went that we don't even know about. It was just one of those places where they liked to go. You know, some people wonder why it is a preacher goes to the same place all the time. New people come in, they say, wonder why he goes out there all the time. Well, do you ever stop to think maybe it's because they ask him sometimes? That's one good clue. And maybe they're glad to have them when they go. As the old saying goes, says, people go where invited and stay where well treated. So that might be the reason they went. At any rate, they're looking for him today. And boy, are they ever preparing. Take a lot of fried chicken and nanner pudding for 13 hungry men who walked all the way down there. They're going to have to get in that kitchen and do some cooking today. So they get up early. They fire up that stove and they get with it. I will know what they had. I wish I did know. None of my business, but I'd sure like to know just for curiosity's sake. But anyway, I know it was a good one. While they cooked, I think maybe they went out and looked up the road to see if they're coming yet. No, we've got time to set the table. We've got time to make the gravy. We've got time to do this. They're not here yet. We can put on a few more things. After a while, though, they look and yonder they all come down the road, Jesus out front, walking along, and all of them walking along beside him, look, looking up at him, everybody crowding to get the closest to him because he's preaching. He always preaches. They weren't talking about the football game and our favorite team, and they weren't talking about the chariot races up in Jerusalem where they could buy a ticket and go, and they did have them in those days, you know. They copied them off of the Olympics, you know, over in Greece. They had Olympics too over there that I might say that they initiated by offering up sacrifices to their idol gods. I'll say that to the people who were so hard on Christmas all the time. They put them both in the same bag. Just give you that for free. But at any rate, but at any rate, Jesus sees a lily over there and he'll talk to him about that lily. Solomon never was closed like that little lily right there, and he doesn't worry a bit. The father closes him. Maybe he sees a sparrow down there and he talks about that sparrow, preaches a sermon on that. Jesus was a simple preacher. He didn't preach about profound and great, deep things. He didn't go down to the uh, uh, Jewish seminar down in Jerusalem and get his degree down there, come back, and talk about deep things that the common people couldn't understand. When you left hearing Jesus, you knew everything he was talking about and exactly what he meant. And nobody had to go home wondering. You didn't have to go get out all your Greek dictionaries, Hebrew dictionaries, to find out what it meant either. No reflection on people who like Hebrew dictionaries. But at any rate, he finally gets up there, and here they are out to meet him. Those old modest ladies of long ago standing out there to meet him, so pious and sweet. 
They greet him at the gate, and he's still preaching. He tells them, he speaks to them, and Martha's still fretting around about that dinner in there, you know. He comes on in, but Mary just becomes entranced with his words. And her eyes get set on his face, and her heart gets fixed on his words, and she, she, just, she just loses herself. And before she knows it, she just, she just uh, sits down on the front steps, probably, and spreads her long uh, 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 skirts over her feet and just sits there and looks up at Jesus. She's at Jesus' feet. Of course, Martha has to run back to the kitchen because dinner's not done yet. No reflection on that, you know. And Jesus doesn't mind that. But after a while, she gets carried away with the thing. She gets to thinking, you know, that girl's not in here yet. I've got all this to do by myself, and after all, 12 o'clock, she come in here, and we're not going to have a thing done. I know now that's bound to be what she's thinking because in a little bit, she just lets it get the best of her. And she just finally walks right back out there and she said, Behold, Master, how my sister's left me here to serve alone. She wants Jesus to just break it up. Put her back in the kitchen where she belongs. Help her get that dinner ready. Now sometimes when I preach on this, the sisters try to be cute. And they'll tell me, When you come over to our house, we're not going to cook anything. We're just going to talk all day today. <laughs> no, that's not what Jesus is talking about. So you go ahead and cook. But the point is this. Jesus didn't want anybody putting a meal ahead of his word and ahead of his teaching. Not just that particular little incident right there, but he was teaching an immortal lesson. Because that's the only way you get spiritual power in your life is out of that word that I'm teaching you. And I want you to hear it. If Jesus ever smiled, I think he must have smiled that day when he said, Martha, Martha. Now, he didn't say it twice because he's yelling loud enough to hear her down to cow barn, you know. He just said, Martha, Martha, for emphasis sake. Thou art cumbered about much serving. But one thing is needful. Mary hath chosen this good part, and I'll not take it away from her. No, I'm not going to make her get up and listening at the words of eternal life in which there's power, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. No, I'm not going to make her get up and go back in the kitchen. We can eat later, Martha. Wait till I get through with this argument. Wait till I get through with this talk, talk that I'm on right here. We'll go eat after a while. That's the meaning of it. But the point I want to bring in today is she found power there that day because there's power in that word. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to never be powerful in the living of the Christian life till you have sat at the feet of Jesus in the constant study and embodiment of his word in your life. That's where you're going to get your power. God's not going to send power down here to you in the Holy Ghost. That day's passed away and gone because the Holy Ghost has already given it to you. After all, what do you want the Holy Ghost to do? He's given you that thing that brings you power and to show you that that's what he means. Paul said in Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but it's the power of God and salvation. So if you want power, you just get down at the feet of Jesus in the study of his word and you read it and you study it and you put it in your life and you're going to walk out a powerful person in Christ. And you are not until you do. Now you can have all the retreats and all the get-togethers and all the ball games and all the volleyball teams you want to. That's not going to make you one whit more spiritual. And that's not going to make you one speck more powerful. And people have turned these things around. Brethren, that's going to be one of the crises of the church in the future generations. Don't you ever doubt it. 
I've seen people who set off by themselves, you know. But they studied the Word of God and they became giants. But I've seen fathers and mothers say, well, you know, I think I want to get my boys down there so they can have some more association and fellowship. Well, they move down where the church is numerous, where the people are, are, are social, where they have all sorts of entertainment. And the first thing you know, they get so carried away with the entertainments and all the functions until they stop studying the only thing that can give them power. They're too busy with the other. Now, I've seen it. Now, I'm not condemning that altogether, but I am condemning letting that replace this because that's where you grow. Peter said, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, and that's how it's done because that's how it brings you power. I'm through with the sermon tonight. This is not a profound sermon, but I love it because it just tells us some of the warm, pulsing, sweet little things about Christ that we hear in his word and that we read in his word and it can give us some benefits in each one of the items that I talked about. Am I talking to somebody tonight who's never come down to the feet of Jesus in obedience to his will? If you haven't, you must believe on Jesus Christ as the Son of God. You know, I, that used to be sort of routine when I started preaching a long time ago. We just command that and sort of glide on over it and go on. But you know, that's not so routine anymore. We've got a lot of folks today coming out of the higher institutions of learning that don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God anymore. They believe in him. They know he lived. They'd be a fool if they said he didn't live, you know, naturally. The histories tell us that. But they don't believe he's really the Son of God. Well, when you've denied the fact that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin and not just a young girl, as some translations say, you have blasted asunder God's whole system of redemption. The bare foundation of it is the fact that you've got to believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, the Son of God. That's where our faith starts. Next to that, then, we must repent of our sins. We repent of all of our past. We quit what we're doing and change our mind with a view to reforming our lives. And then we confess him. That's where we run up our flag for Christ. We believed him, but now we want the world to know it. And if it means death like it did in the first century, that's all right too. They, And then, of course, we're commanded to be baptized for the remission of our sins, and that changes our relationship. It leaves the world. We leave the world. Like we spoke about Matthew the other night. We leave the world. We leave our old friends. We come to the parting of the ways. We come to the crossroads. And then we step over into the new land. And we start living the new life from then on. We're a new creature. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. And behold, all things are become new. New. Brand new. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.